Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and on the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, your free travel writing guidebook, and much more at alloverthepodcast.com. Today's episode brings us to Oxford, where Anna Sherman speaks with us about trespassing into foreign cultures, finding a voice in a new language, and conceptions of time in Japan. We also talk about her debut book, The Bells of Old Tokyo, Meditations on Time in a City. Anna's work can be found in LitHub, The Paris Review, and Salon. So now... Here is Anna Sherman. Well, Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on your book, uh, The Bells of Old Tokyo, Meditations on Time and a City. It's a beautiful book that wanders through Tokyo, space and time. And also, congratulations on your nomination for the Edwin Stanford Travel Writing Prize. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So um, can you walk us through uh, the premise of the book? What What is this book about? Bells is an exploration of Tokyo and also a meditation on its time, history, and, and the memory of, of people living there. Uh, in it, I mix interviews with Japanese poets, scientists, historians, and aristocrats with original material from archives. But in writing the book, I really wanted to take the reader places in the city that aren't easily accessible, uh, private spaces, uh, things, um, you know, that are out of bounds to most people living in the city. So I, I went into temples, into labs where physicists are building atomic lattice clocks, um, and into memorials uh, for war victims that in chambers really deep inside the earth. So like I said, I wanted the reader to come with me into some quite strange places. Mm -hmm. You'd mentioned um, things being out of bounds for most visitors. Do you think that there's a side of Tokyo that is inaccessible for normal visitors, not because of, I don't know, top 10 sites to see, or is it uh, perhaps because of foreigner status? Well, some of the places that I just mentioned, um, they're not out of bounds if you're the right person. So, for mm -hmm. instance, in the memorial for the uh, victims of the firebombs during World War II, if, if you had a family member who died, then you can go inside, to me, this, this quite beautiful, austere place that is deep in the earth. Um, uh, if you are a physicist, you can go into the labs in Todai or Riken. But what I wanted to be was an ordinary person seeing those places. And I found that if I asked um, respectfully, people actually welcomed me inside. So, And I think every city. Uh, I'm from Little Rock, um, just 
I can think of any city in the States. Mm-hmm. You, there are places that you can't go. Like you have to uh, sort of, you know, sometimes beg your way in uh, or always think about how you're, you're, you're going to kind of cross the labyrinth. Uh, thread your way through the labyrinth. Um, And it's not that you can't go there. It's that you have to think very carefully about how. How to approach it, right? There was um, one of the chapters in the book, I forget which, um, you were approaching uh, one of the bells, I think the one of the bells that rings at New Year's, and you were denied access to that bell. (laughs) Yes. Well, I have had some criticism by people who really know Japan quite well, and they think that I romanticize the city Mm -hmm. because often some of the people whom I met seem to be too good to be true. And I I can see why they would feel that way. Um, But in fact, I met whom I met. But I also, in a way, I was quite pleased with having that experience, because that's the experience that everyone sort of expects you to have. (laughs) Um, when someone says, no, go away, I don't want to help you. But it it, it just, it was, um, a mark of the kindness I met and the generosity of the Japanese and the Tokyoites that really, that was, that was a unique experience. I, I had very few people who said no to me and didn't want to help, but in fairness to that temple um, at- attendant, I think that what I was asking for was strange. Mm-hmm. And and, I, and again, I, I hadn't approached the labyrinth in the right way because I think you always need to go into the secret spaces, a kind of passcodes, or to introduce yourself. Like to get into the Rican labs, I think I wrote five letters to the professor wow. there and, and he was so generous. I just kept going back because I was thinking, I, I didn't believe him when he said no. <laughs> <laughs> Because I thought, I, I really want this story in my book. I really want to see these these lattice clocks, some of which are as small as rice grains. Um, but in this case, I had just walked into the temple, and then I happened to see on a um, some information uh, that was sort of given on almost like st- storyboards on the wall mm-hmm. that that one of the bells of time had ended up in Skiji. And I, I had never read that. I just chanced on the information. And then I was desperate to see the bell and um, the temple attendant just just in the, the rudest Japanese, not quite the rudest, but it was just very abrupt, you know, go away. Strange, you know, strange lady, go <laughs> away. <laughs> uh, so like I said, you could say that not getting to see it was my fault because mm. I didn't approach it correctly, but I just didn't have time to write the correct people to find out. And and again, it's if you see uh, that bell, it was a huge bell. It was originally the God of War's bell. And the writing is very intricate and it it would have been something I think that very few people in that temple, if anyone could just have read, um, you know, uh, just without uh, dictionaries. Right. <laughs> so I was asking her to do something very hard and thereby breaking the rules for entering the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. So we've um, we've mentioned lattice clocks and bells of time. Perhaps we can take a step back for the listeners and um, perhaps explain what the bells of time are and um you know this these inscriptions that you you've mentioned that are on the bells mm. well um i suppose the first thing uh that your listeners may not know i didn't know when i i started uh finding looking for the bells mm-hmm. is that they are not uh, the equivalent of western bells uh, they don't ring back and forth swing back and forth they don't have clappers in Japan, as in Korea, Taiwan, and China, uh, the bells are domes 
some of them quite huge that mm. are struck in Japan by a, a wooden column called the shumaku. Um, and so to ring the, the really great bells, you almost need an acrobat where um, the ringer is, is rocking back and almost lying down on the floor and then flying up and, and slamming this column into the, the bronze dome. Um, so the bells don't, even though where they exist now, they don't serve th- uh, the purpose, um, that they once did, sorry, the function, mm-hmm. they were originally a kind of psychological control over the area where they could be heard. So, um, Osaka and Kyoto also had bells of time, but for anyone living in Osaka, Kyoto or Edo, which was Tokyo's name before 1868, mm-hmm. you would hear the tolling and, and get information from it, that it was time to go to work or time to go back home or time to eat you know so the bells also symbolize power like the reach of the shogunate um in one kabuki play when a runaway lover hears the bell the audience immediately understands that basically this this character is not going to escape <laughs> mm. you know it's they're doomed so so the the bells were constructed during the shogunate uh, period well, they had bells before, but they mm. weren't used, you know, for um, the ringing of of the hours. They mm. they weren't they weren't like clocks. I see. So, <laughs> I think the clock function comes in perhaps around sixteen fifteen, sixteen twenty. We don't have records, which isn't perhaps surprising given how many times Tokyo has burned, or rather Edo before it. So, right. <laughs> but I think around sixteen fifteen, sixteen twenty, as the city gets bigger. And um, the people who live there need to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. They're they're quite um, quite large. You sent me uh, an email with <laughs> videos of the bells, and they're enormous. Right, <laughs> this guy's like swinging on the columns, doing backflips just to you know yes. get the momentum to push this column yes. to the. To but the they're back. not all like that. Right. And one thing I would say to the to the listeners is that some of them are small and they have just wonderful tones. So the Zodiac bell, which is in Akasaka is not very big. And uh, it's called the Zodiac bell because it has a poem, um, on, about, on the, uh, sort of the hours, uh, mm. that was when the bell was cast, the poem was cast as well. So it, it makes this wonderful pattern of, of differing color, colors of green, on the bell. Oh. And it's, this is a small one, which a child could easily ring in sound. And uh, a sock says the same way. So there were some bells which were huge, like the one in Zojoji, which is near where Tokyo Tower is. Uh, that it's the bell, the original bell is gone. It, it uh, cracked in the 19th century. Hmm. But it was one of those monster bells that you're describing. So b- before your book, I had no idea that there were bells of time uh, throughout. Um, Tokyo. And that probably speaks more to, to my ignorance about Japanese history and culture more than anything else. Um, but I'm also assuming that many other people don't know about these, um, unless you spend a great deal of time in Japan. So like, how did you hear about the bells? How did you first learn about the bells? And uh, I don't know, why did you want to write about them? Well, I just happened to see one and they're beautiful objects. And when I saw it, I just felt this electricity and I, I thought, I have to write about this. Um, I I don't think that they're well known, uh, even with Japan itself. And I think it's also um, very important to remember that the Japanese 
you know, especially Tokyo, which is a very modern city. I mean, it, it's not some mystical fairy tale landscape. I mean, right. they wake up, they wake up to sort of iPhone alarms and, uh, you know, use timers just like we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so I'm not sure they're even that well known today, but, um, they, and some of them have disappeared as, as I t- mentioned to you, I, I, when we were, uh, discussing, uh, the concept of the bells of time, some of them were actually melted down, um, for ordnance during world war II. like the Mejiro bell is, is gone. But, um, so I'm not sure there's, uh, you should know about this. It's just basically a kind of pre-modern way of telling time, you know? Mm-hmm. So very distant from the Tokyo that we know today. So what about the book? So w- when did the initial fascination for a bell having seen one transform, uh, or morph into the idea of writing a book about these spells? <laughs> well, people ask me that, and I, the true answer is I'm really not sure, because this book has gone through so many transformations. Mm. It started out as an investigation into a very obscure branch of uh, Japan's physics community, um, because someone told me that string theorists, these are uh, sort of mathematical physicists mm-hmm. who think that the universe exists in 11 dimensions instead of three. So if you think of a, you know, um, a dot, a line, a cube, that's one dimension, two dimensions, three dimensions. Uh, there are people who think that there are um, 11. And, um, <laughs> but that was just too hard to write about that. What interested me about Japan and string theory was that just a very high proportion of the world string theorists live in Japan. Mm. And I was wondering why that was. And they were all such interesting people because if you think about it, you know, what is a, a universe of 11 dimensions like, but then I decided that it just, it was too complicated <laughs> and too <laughs> complex. And, you know, I think to tell that story, right. It would just have to be, you know, pure mathematics. And I wasn't going to do that. So um, anyway, so there was that, and then it evolved. The book evolved into a, a much more autobiographical narrative, mm-hmm. and I, I I did have this one quite wonderful reader who said, "Cut it, cut it. People want to read about Tokyo, uh, not you." And so I, I slashed the first forty pages and took out all references to myself and to my family, and I just kept shaving away words until what was left is the book you have now. Oh, wow. Well, I'd like to jump so in. The bells were what survived. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the narrative because there's something that interesting, there's something interesting that happens, especially with the, I guess you can call it a sub-narrative with uh, the story of uh, Daibo, the coffee shop mm-hmm. owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get there, but um, before uh, we do that, maybe we can also talk a little bit about um, your your background because throughout the book, I think readers will, will note that you have a, an interest in kind of explaining Japanese words and, you know, oddities in the Japanese language, right? There's this one section where you talk about uh, the love hotels and the various Japanese words for male and female genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> Some are very humorous, right? Uh, like, yes. My mother begged me to cut that passage, <laughs> but I, I just thought it was very interesting. You know, yeah. I kind of thought of it as a list poem and um, it's based on the work of uh, a quite a serious scholar actually. And that was one of his first jobs out of college. I'm not going to say on air whom he is just because I'm not sure he's very proud of this work, but he went on to, to do some quite serious translations and this was just an early kind of thing he did, from, like I said, out of university. And it, I think he just translated literally 
um, a Japanese uh, thesaurus, which were um, which went through term by term uh, <laughs> words for male genitalia and female genitalia. And I, I was kind of amused by how different they were. Uh-huh. And I have been working with quite a serious translator who said to me kind of darkly, what do you mean that there are, you know, five times more words for, you know, the women's body than, than male and then she went away and, and, and actually counted the pages, and it's true. So, uh, <laughs> But I just thought it was so interesting that the words you used reflected who you were. Mm. And it's because it's this very densely metaphoric language. So, uh, right, anyway, so there's I, an I, example <laughs> like uh, for, for the female genitalia, inkwell, right? Uh-huh. Or, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'm sure I you, can think of worse names <laughs> <laughs> teapot, right? Uh, but so you have a you have an interest in language, right? Um, so take us back. Like you, you studied uh, Greek and Latin in university before going to to Japan. Um, you know, did this kind of influence you, and in, in terms of you know what you paid attention to or what you wanted to write about in Japan? Well, um, actually, this was part of the autobiographical content which was cut, mm. and that is the fact that my brother has a rare undiagnosed disease, which leaves him with no language at all. So from the t- time I was very, very small, because he's almost two years older than I am, my mother was always trying to teach him to speak, and um, he has complete aphasia, so no vocabulary at all. Um, and so I think language and the different... Um, ways of saying things. Like I think Samuel Beckett said there are certain things you can say in French that you can only say in French Mm -hmm. because he, I believe he wrote in French as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was sort of haunted just by my brother's absence of speech. And so I think that that made me very curious about things even, which may sound very strange, like Indo-European, like what was the original language? What was, what was the original language in the Garden of Eden? Because I grew up in Arkansas and I had a grandmother who was quite fundamentalist and she really believed in the the Garden of, of Eden and the kind of the sacredness of naming things. So then I had um, in my inner city public high school in Little Rock, um, Greek and Latin were offered. So I was 14 and um, I, I don't know. I think I, I just kept studying classics until uh, – I, until it basically, it was like a love affair. Mm-hmm. And so we got tired of each other. And I, I realized that the next thing to do would be to do a doctorate. And I just didn't feel like I could contribute to the field. So, um, and I felt like I really wanted to to be the the writers whom I imagined, uh, admired, like Pindar, Aeschylus, Sophocles, rather mm-hmm. than than writing about them, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, but and as far as me explaining things about, to the readers about Japan, I and mean, that's just my process of discovery. So I think when you read a a book like Oracle Bones or Rivertown by Peter Hessler, he's doing the same thing. It's like part of the narrative is that movement from ignorance to partial understanding. So you'd mentioned that um, you could learn a lot about a person or perhaps a culture based on the words and um, the words that they use and also the language. Um, Hmm. How might that apply in the Japanese context? 
Uh, that's such a hard question just because I feel like a Japanese and, uh, is a, is a polychromatic language. Like you can tell, uh, not just male, female, older, younger, regional, um, different forms of, 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 um, of literacy perhaps. It's just, uh, it's, it's so multivalent. I'm, I'm looking for the right word and not finding it. And to me it was, um, it just was beautiful experience listening to different people talk mm -hmm. because almost like if you can imagine arias, um, and that has been an issue with translating the book into Japanese because, um, especially where some of the interviews that I had, for instance, with Lord Tokugawa or the very famous artist, uh, Miyajima Tatsuo, I, uh, I conducted them in English. And so the question is, how do you then translate it back into Japanese? Because, you know, what, what kind of, <laughs> you know, it just, yeah, just yeah. so that it's also inclusive, but it's, like I said, it's just so rich and, and the clip, I don't know, like think about Shakespeare who would sometimes have some of his characters speak in prose and others in blank verse, you know, it's, it's, it's like that, but cubed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating language. Yeah. Right? Like I. You know, my wife and I have been uh, on the bandwagon and we've been watching uh, Terrace House. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. I'm not. Okay, so it's this really kind of self-indulgent TV show on Netflix where <laughs> it's like the real uh, the real world, uh, but mm. in Japan. And um, <laughs> sometimes uh, one of the cast members is a Westerner, an American mm -hmm. or perhaps a, a European Mm -hmm. And the native Japanese characters always seem to make the distinction on how kind of direct the Western characters are, mm. which is to say that the Japanese characters are speaking in a somewhat uh, indirect or vague or mm. metaphorical way. Um, and the Westerners just cut to the chase and they're like, boom, you know, I want this. <laughs> um, is, is that something that you've encountered in Japan and well... in your studies? I, I just feel like the bar for being fluent is so high there. And I, mm. I met, I think it depends on the Westerner just because uh, some people whom I met learned to speak so beautifully. And in fact, some people just, I, I really felt like they had cast off their original identities. You know, it was, and, and just, um, adopted, just a different way of thinking and speaking because any language you study, you know, from Spanish to Swahili, you know, to Russian, you will learn to think in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, I did meet some, not very many who could make that leap, but I found that often it's, it's not just a question of aptitude, but, but to language, the original language, there's a kind of tethering of identity and I felt for whatever reason that I was never really able to lose myself in, in the language. And I, I, uh, again, I have a friend in Oxford who is Japanese and her English is, is excellent. I mean, she moves back and forth between languages and she's very matter of fact, like she doesn't see it as a mystical thing. Mm -hmm. But again, I just felt like there was some kind of guideline that held me back and kept me who I was. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Um, but I've had other friends who are writers who said that they were concerned that if they really learned Japanese as, 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 and became fluent, they would lose something of their 
um, ability to speak English. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, mine was good enough and people always laughed at it because it was very formal. I'd been taught by a, um, a woman whose parents had been, uh, I guess the equivalent would be Victorians. And so her speech was very old fashioned and formal. And so often when Japanese would hear me speak, they'd laugh because it was this very, <laughs> because they would never, in, in, in the beginning, they would think, is she making fun of us? <laughs> but, and, and I, I just, I spoke the way I'd been taught to speak. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I felt also it's, it's a, you can start out being very respectful and then if you want to dial down and, um, because there's a whole different idiom and even verb forms for speaking to, to children or animals. Um, and, but if you miss the register, you know, and, uh, you speak to someone as an equal whom you shouldn't speak to as an equal, that can cause trouble. Whereas if you're formal and people laugh at you, like I said, I felt, <laughs> I felt very safe doing that. And I liked yeah, the formal yeah, yeah. language. Yeah, you just learned the, so. the the polite form of, <laughs> of a language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. It was simple. It was simple. I did know this. I had this one friend who could speak. She had studied in Kyoto, and she could speak the most elegant Kansai Ben. But also, she was a Hanshin Tigers baseball fan, and so her Japanese was the most elevated. She could speak to diplomats because her she grew up in a family of diplomats. But she could also speak just filthy, <laughs> you know, really. <laughs> And I, I just, I, I felt safer in the middle because you have to be a real virtuoso and very confident to bring those, uh, those, those feats off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was interesting what, what you just, uh, what you said a few minutes ago about, um, your friends who are able to, to speak Japanese, but they're afraid to kind of dive a little bit deeper because they're afraid that they're going to lose, uh, the ability to speak uh, their native language. And no, it's right. These are writers. writers for whatever I reason, I knew I knew many writers, foreign writers, in um, in Japan, and and they were worried about sacrificing themselves in that way. Well, I think there's something um, something to be said about that. There's something true about that. Um, I, I think it's it's often the experience that people who are learning and are immersed in a new or mm. foreign language often return home and fumble for the correct words, right? They, they can recall yes, the, new word that's that, true. the new word that they learned, but for some reason can't kind of immediately recall the native language words. So there's something interesting going on there, right? It's now. true. It's true. And then there are some people like Joseph Conrad who, you know, right. wrote exquisite English, likewise Nabokov. Um, and a Japanese uh, writer, Okakura Kakuzo, uh, there were Japanese critics who said he never wrote in Japanese the beautiful, the luminous English, or rather anything that would rival that English that he wrote in the Book of Tea, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends on where you find your voice. And I did write small things in Japanese, but never. It it does feel like you sort of have to choose, you know you have to choose a language. Very few people are able to move back and forth between them. I admire them very much, but that that was never a problem that I had. Mm. But often these would, like when it came up, it would be in, in, you know, someone who had married um, a Japanese national. And in one case, I knew someone who would wash his face. And he said, and when I looked in the mirror, I was shocked that it wasn't a Japanese face just because his, um, his mother-in-law was his editor. 
his wife was Japanese. And like I said, he had really found um, a place there. Mm. And uh, his and his Japanese poetry is exquisite. I mean, to me, I find it very moving and in ways that his English um, just didn't it wasn't as compelling. I'm, I'm not sure why that that was. Uh, but again, he was a mm, mm. you said so. you said that you wrote small things. And uh, one of the small things, at least that you mentioned writing in your book is a poem to Daibo. <laughs> yes. At the end. <laughs> um, I don't remember uh, exactly what it was. I think it was a, a small, uh, small poem for him. Yes. Uh, yes. C- can you explain to us uh, who Daibo is and, you know, what's um, going on there with that narrative? So when I first moved to Japan, I just was looking for a coffee shop, I think. And um, I had a, a copy of, of uh, the Time Out guide describing, you know, good bars, good good coffee shops in Tokyo. And so it was mentioned there and I had a hard time finding it just because it was difficult. It was on this little, it, uh, sort of collapsing shack in the middle of glittering Motosando, which was then and now, uh, you know, one of the most affluent and edgiest, trendiest parts of the city. And I went in and it was just this place that was, uh, it's so difficult to describe, and it's gone now. I, I, if anyone mm. is interested, I would recommend uh, a an essay written in the is it is it Kingdoms Roads and Kingdoms blog about it. It's called Daibo Dreamed of of Coffee, and so you can find the most beautiful black and white photographs. And that writer describes what it was like to go into the coffee shop, and I. He was famous when I first knew him, but then when, um, this is a spoiler alert, but real estate pressures, uh, forced him to close the coffee shop. He really became almost a rock star. If that doesn't sound too silly, uh, (laughs) just not because of how he made coffee. It was, and his coffee was wonderful, but just the way he treated his, his guests and people who went inside. So I, um, he was certainly kind to me. And to everyone who came into that coffee shop, uh, it just so in a sense, the relationship was special, but he was the, the way he treated me was the way he treated everyone. Mm-hmm. And, um, famous people went there like Haruki Murakami, uh, would visit Seiji Ozawa was a, a regular, but he treated every single person the same, you know, the same kind of calm, the same respect, the same, just humor. Cause he's funny. And with me, because I really learned how to speak Japanese, I want to say almost to communicate with him because I became so fond of him. And his his wife did speak Japanese, but and she also worked in the coffee shop. But I was just so fond of him. And he would press on me these these books of poetry, which I could barely read in the beginning. And um, every time I made a mistake, Daibo-san would say very gently, kamaimasen, kamaimasen, or he would laugh just saying, keep trying, you know, ganbatte, mm-hmm. just convinced that my uh, Japanese would always be terrible. But uh, he's a, a very playful person. I, I think that that's one thing I, I wish I had come over more in the book because um, uh, I, I think someone in the literary review described him as, as sounding like a sage. And when I told him this, he, he thought it was hilarious, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is what you'd expect a sage, you know, how you'd expect a sage to react. But he's playful. Like one time 
he he bought these uh, traditional Japanese candies for us to share, and they were shaped like these uh, sort of whipped uh, whirlpools or mm-hmm. meringues. And he told me that this candy uh, symbolized the idea that anything could happen. And so imagine somebody who can read all that symbolism into candy and and laugh while he said it. Right. So I just like I said, he's he's very irreverent. He's not some you know Zen master, although he is a Zen you know <laughs> the coffee master. If you can imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is Roads and Kingdoms. And um, I, I just pulled it up. And, uh, you know, there are these great black and white photos here of mm-hmm. Daibo in the coffee mm-hmm. shop. And it's mm-hmm. exactly how I imagine the coffee shop to be, actually. Um, and I can't say that the same about uh, Daibo, but you do see <laughs> um, pictures of him and, and his humor. He's laughing and uh, mm-hmm. his personality shining through. Um, you'd mentioned kind of famous Japanese writers visiting the coffee shop, mm-hmm. but I, I don't suspect they had the same relationship uh, with Daibo as you did, not because of anything except for the fact that maybe you made that initiative. Um, it, it seems from reading the book, in other words, that you had a very special uh, relationship with this man. You've, you you went back and you, um, you communicated letters with him, you visited him. Um, could you talk to us more about that relationship? <laughs> well, there's a line in Montaigne somewhere when uh-huh. he says, when he's asked to explain why you're friends with someone and he just said, because it was him, because it was me. Because and, and I guess, I guess that's true, but I think I would really encourage it, And it was such a privilege to be his friend, to, mm-hmm. you know, to be, uh, you know, to know him, to, to drink coffee in that place. Um, but really he did treat almost everyone the same. And it was funny because, uh, he worked so hard. Like there's a tiny little book, um, which is difficult to find, but if you, it's his coffee manual. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if, if, if anyone can find that it's, it's by, uh, uh, Nohoko press and in it, he describes his philosophy of coffee and it's just serve it in such a way that people can strip off their armor because just being alive is such a fight and finding the coffee shop is such a fight that you want to make them comfortable. And in fact, everyone found something to kind of um, uh, love in that space. And in fact, when I wrote a, a years ago, when I wrote a small piece about what it was like to to sit there, my father criticized it. He said, "You forgot to mention the jazz because he'd been there himself, and every mm-hmm. single thing that Daibo planned from the the doorknobs to the." <laughs> to the uh, the window frames, to the f- arrangement of flowers, even. I mean, he said to me really seriously, he said, the flowers invented the shop. They tell us how to live and how to die. Um, but everything was arranged around the concept that you could make a space restful by not having kind of jarring imperfections, but he was generous because there are some places, uh, I don't think the coffee master is still alive. Like one, one of the most famous of these, these coffee shops was in Ginza and the coffee master would actually throw you out if you added milk to coffee he'd made without telling him before he made the coffee that you wanted milk. And, and Daiba-san <laughs> wasn't like that. And in fact, he would serve, he, he did something which is sort of unusual for these kisaten, which was he would serve tea. He would serve uh, grape juice, this very sour <laughs> grape juice from the part of Hanshi where he was from, because he didn't. He wanted to have something to offer for people who didn't like coffee. And if I can tell you one story, which just sums him up, um, mm-hmm. 
So I have a friend who's Japanese and her mother was an Arabs, Arabic specialist and the mother had died um, of, of stomach cancer. And she, one of the things the doctor said is don't drink coffee. So this, this friend herself, she, she didn't want to, to see coffee or smell it because she associated it with the loss of her mother. And, um, she had a, a senpai, like a, a patron, a spot, you know, an older friend who said, but you have to come to this place. You can't not go here. And so she went back and it was a place of healing, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Mm-hmm. And you ask about my friendship with Daibo-san, and I guess there were things that happened that were very um, – you, you, I suppose you're right that, you know, I trusted him in such a way that, you know, with, with being vulnerable. And as many people did there, and again, he wasn't pretentious. Um, you know, so we, we went through some – you know, quite difficult things together. For instance, Fukushima. Mm-hmm. Um, I had friends who never forgave me uh, for leaving when we didn't know what would happen with the reactors. Um, I I left. I left for a month, and Daibosan never mentioned it again. Like, you know, he knew that I'd gone. He he sort of absorbed that, and then he just moved on. So. Hmm. He was. Uh, I'm making him sound like a sage, which he wouldn't like. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. You know, the. What's interesting about, in in my opinion, as a casual kind of reader of, of your book, is, you know, Daibo comes in uh, from time to time, and we keep on returning to da- Daibo, Daibo-san. And mm-hmm. there's a part of that story that, without giving anything away, uh, remains unresolved. And um, I wanted to, you know, hear about Daibo-san more. Um, but <laughs> I'm also, like, reminded of... Um, some of the work of Pico Iyer, his recent book, Autumn Light, mm-hmm. where one of the um, I guess points that he wanted to get across in this book, from what I understand, is this idea of kind of this Western narrative kind of action beginning and end, very clear beginning and end. Whereas, you know, in, in Japan, narratives are, are more fluid, for lack of a better word. There's impermanence. There are ties that are... Um, unresolved. And it seems that Daibo fits, or the narrative of Daibo in your book kind of fits in this, in, in this schema, hmm. right, of, of being unresolved. I was wondering if, if that was something that you had thought about prior to writing this or? <laughs> well, I have to say, I think that Pico Iyer owns uh, the trope of impermanence that <laughs> I did think in. <laughs> I, 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 I would not, um, I would not trespass on that ground, but I did love in his book, there's a, a, a passage, I think when he's passing in elementary school and they're practicing the Japanese alphabet. And it's this poem about impermanence. It's quite, quite beautiful, much, uh, much more um, nuanced than our, uh, how we learn our ABCs. Mm-hmm. So uh, but I hadn't thought of that. I, I think that's true. I, but with Daibo-san, part of the reason I leave it open is that I'm touching wood, but he's, his arc isn't finished just because right. he's still with us. But I do get that from people who almost want to shake me, like take me by the shoulders and shake me and saying, where is Daibo-san? <laughs> and the answer is he's still in Tokyo and making coffee. And when he does serve it, a few hundred people show up and they wait patiently <laughs> to drink it. So you can still, you know, he's still there. Um, he doesn't have a coffee shop now, but he sometimes gives instructions on making coffee or speaks about the philosophy of coffee. And if you're lucky, you can actually drink it. 
So if you want more Daibo, you got to go to Japan, right? Well, you do, yeah. you do. So um, if you don't mind, let's kind of shift a little bit and um, kind of go back to this topic of, of time, uh, because that's what your book is is largely about. Um, there, there's a passage in the book uh, that also refers to the words and ideas of time uh, in in Japan, uh, pre and uh, post opening to the to the West, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or to the rest of the world. And one of the um, examples that you bring up is that uh, Japanese kind of adopts the English word time, taimu, uh, <laughs> yes. but for a very specific. Uh, I guess idea of time and, and time keeping, right? I think it's like the stopwatch. That's true. Yeah. So, um, Japanese, I guess, from what I understand, you, you know, in Japan, there's this very complicated idea of time. And given that there are complicated notions of time in Japan, and you spent a considerable <laughs> amount of time writing your book on this idea of time, um, did doing that change the way you think about time? Is is time now more complicated for you? Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> but I think, honestly, we in English have this one word, time. And uh, I, th- I think about the idea as almost be- like being a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for us, it's a, it's a sheet, uh, the Japanese fold it up and turn it into something else. I mean, not just a crane, but if you've seen how complex origami can be, it's, um, I just think that it's not one idea in Japan, you know, so it's in English, even it's, it's an umbrella term, but in Japan, because they're borrowing so much themselves, not just from English, but from Sanskrit, which has a really beautiful technical vocabulary for these instances, these fragments of seconds, and also for eternities beyond which we can, you know, understand or, or mm-hmm. comprehend. I mean, they're almost in, in, in things like places like the Lotus Sutra. Uh, one great scholar uh, who lived in Japan for years, Burton Watson, wrote that you're not even supposed to think of these. They're just imaginary numbers, just almost not quite like psychedelic things, but just to blow your mind. It's not an actual number, huh. you know, it just that's how it you know eon even doesn't doesn't co- you know cover it and then because they borrowed so much of their literature from china like mm-hmm. they have this very literary uh language for time and that's the chinese and then they also have uh their own native words the yamato uh, yamato kotoba which are you know often tethered to uh planting and uh nature and fields and 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 like i said it's just it's not one single word and if i if i changed how i thought about it it was just you know i came to see it as more than just one concept so they um you know (laughs) it i i i just thought it was interesting and i i tried to almost let these things flow over me rather than um catch them as it were Uh, does that make sense Yeah, yeah like you know, and, and it's in English, we, we have it. Like I think of Faulkner in, in um, The Sound and the Fury when uh, Quentin Compson gets uh, the pocket watch from his father who says, I'm giving you the mausoleum of time. It's it's not like we don't have these concepts ourselves. It's just, 
it has been something to go back to Pico Iyer, you know, who's tracking it with um, his discussions of impermanence. It just it 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 comes in with with Buddhism, perhaps, and um, and the kind of wars of the medieval periods, you know, during which um, time you could have uh, cities burned to the ground and dynasties fall, and just the sense that things don't last. I'm not really sure. And I I suppose I moved away from trying to have an absolute answer. And that's part of why I wanted to have a choir of voices, Mm -hmm. you know, different arias from different people, because no answer was the same. It was always something alien or other. And um, I think as much as anything else, that's how I got access in Japan was uh, that the Japanese whom I wanted to interview, except for one physicist who said no, who said, I prefer not to meet. Um, these people were themselves interested in the question. And I think it would maybe be boring if we could answer it in absolute terms, because another one of the physicists whom I interviewed um, said he didn't want to touch the question of what time was, because he thought of it as a joke. You know, you could work on it your wow. entire career, he said, and never solve it. And I, I felt like, you know, he said, if, if, if we have hit a barrier to what we can know, we should respect it. Mm-hmm. It's an awesome thing in the, in the sense of, you know, bringing you to your knees because it's, it's, it's such a hard idea. But again, like when people, it makes you focus on, on what perhaps matters in a, you know, in a life, as it were, because one of the people whom I asked was a, um, he was the press monk at, at Kaneji in Ueno. And I said to him, well, what do you, you know, when you think of time, what is it to you? And he said, well, uh, when I close my eyes, it stops. When I open my eyes, it's born again. You know, he was just talking about sleeping and I don't think he was being particularly, uh, philosophical, but it, it was, you know, what he meant was it was a kind of construct of our waking minds. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, as are the seasons. I think I learned from your book, um, you know, the, the Japanese have so many different seasons as. Um, oh, the micro seasons. The micro yes. seasons, right. And, you know, the West has distinctly four, right. And I don't know how many the Japanese have, 11, 20. But, you know, they have a, a more kind of nuanced um, or complicated uh, idea of these things, not to say that they're more nuanced and, and complicated in general, but as it pertains to, to these constructs, they, it seems that they do. Um, can, can we infer anything from that in terms of Japanese culture or should we resist the <laughs> well, imperialist I, notion? <laughs> I, I met a man who builds uh, clocks the old way and the Japanese wadoke or Japanese clocks were designed to track the seasons. So the clock um, reflected the fact that in winter night was longer than in summer and they could do this by uh, just adjusting weights on a folio mechanism. Mm. And I think that, you know, he said to me, who needed clocks? The point of clocks wasn't keeping time or, you know, saying, was it six, seven, eight o'clock? It was just showing off. They were objects the way that you would have a Ferrari now. And he said, most people were farmers and the sun was their clock. And I think that's true. And so when you have things like micro seasons, it becomes very important to know when to plant, because if you put the seeds in the ground at the wrong time, you have to start over, you know, the plants will die or, um, just because in frosts or not come to rightness uh, at the right point. And so I think that it, it, it's, it's, it's a pre-modern concept that we've moved away from because, you know, now in the supermarket we have fruit, 
you know, things aren't seasonal anymore, really. You can have um, fruit from all over the world and never go without an apple. <laughs> so I, I think that this, in a sense, it's very different than the world that our um, great grandparents would have known, you know, before uh, refrigeration, before um, sort of cheap cargo flights. So it, it'll be interesting um, just to see how that how that evolves in the next uh, few decades, because one thing has become true um, in Japan as elsewhere. Um, the cherry blossoms bloomed in, in autumn last year uh, because of global warming. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that affects how we um, break down our days and years. Mm-hmm. was well, also very interesting in, in terms of that conversation uh, the way that, in which the Japanese responded to the Western incursion of daylight saving time. <laughs> yes. Right? They um, yes. refused. Hated it. Yeah, because they wanted it <laughs> to get darker earlier, right? Yes, yes. Well, I, I again, I, I kind of made that almost a, a mystical um, commentary on the American occupation, that it was just by controlling time, it was uh, just too far. But according to Lord Tokugawa, whom I interviewed on the subject, uh, he he just said he had a very matter-of-fact rationale for why people didn't like daylight savings time. And he said it, it meant that you were working for free for an extra hour, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there was nothing kind of mystical about it, just uh, um yeah. But I remember in Arkansas, someone writing to our local newspaper, the Arkansas Gazette, and saying uh, he didn't believe in daylight savings time, that it made uh, fools out of men and liars out of clogs. <laughs> so this is a, a kind of some old farmer who didn't didn't approve of having to change the clogs. That's interesting. Well, we are getting close to time here. Um <laughs> <laughs> That was unintentional. Uh, what uh, what what do you have going on? Um, what's next for you? Um, well, I have just finished a, um, um, publishing a little essay in a new edition of Okakura Kakazo's Book of Tea. Mm-hmm. That's out in England next week. Um, it's only 18 pages long, but it took four months to write because Okakura was quite a dangerous figure, or he's the, the ultranationalist who led Japan into World War II, borrowed his his writing and his language. So dealing with that legacy was delicate work, but Okakura was just a very interesting mind. And, um, so I, I was very happy to work on that project. And, um, after that, I'm going to write a book about a stretch of the Chinese Silk Road from the city of Xi'an to Urumqi. Very good. We'll, we'll put those uh, links in the show notes, uh, as soon as we get them and um, well thank you for coming on can you let us know where we can find you online yes thank you it's at Anna underscore Charlberry C-H-A-R-L-B-U-R-Y thank you so much for having me thanks for coming on I hope you enjoyed the interview You can find the episode show notes and much more at alloverthepacepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash alloverthepace. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash allovertheplace. 
Thanks for your support. 